Our reading this morning comes from James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together as we prepare to approach God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news that we have already recited this morning, that you, our creator, invite us into your presence to worship you, um, and yet we are aware of our brokenness in coming before you, and you have provided redemption for us through Jesus and the assurance of our pardon in Him. Father, we pray now that as we sit beneath your word, that you would again make this good news clear to us, that you would remind us, even as we sit beneath it, that all of us are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of Jesus and what He has accomplished for us, we are also far more loved, secure, accepted, and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. And so, Father, we pray that You would give us eyes of faith to see this author and perfecter of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. Good news for uh, parents of young children. Our children's church will be returning next Sunday. So sorry. Um, anyway, um, we we give our uh, our volunteers that work with children's church uh, time off when there are holiday weekends, and so we're going to be back next Sunday. Um, throughout the fall this past year, uh, man, past year already. Um, we were, uh, we were going through a series on James' letter, and we took a, a brief break during the weeks leading up to Christmas, and now we're back in James, and we have this Sunday and next Sunday to finish up our series in James before we start our next series. Um, and it, it was purely unintentional on my part, but as I was thinking about this passage, it is kind of neat that just... Last Sunday, uh, Christmas Day, we were celebrating together the coming of Jesus, and now we're in a passage in James chapter 5, and he's telling us about the day when Jesus will come again, right? Verse 8, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And he's telling us that there's this horizon 
in the distance. Um, there's a day coming. One day, someday, the King of Kings will come again for his people. And James is saying to us this morning, if you can live in view of that horizon, um, to have that before your eyes will change and shape your life and transform your life in the present. Um, you may not know that I am nearsighted, and so I have my contact lenses in this morning uh, so that I can see you. Um, but, you know, it's not a big deal to you, right? Who cares? Um, but the state of Tennessee actually thinks it's a pretty important deal um, because they've branded me. They stuck it on my driver's license for everybody to see. You know, don't let this man get behind the wheel and operate a motor vehicle without corrective lenses. Um, and that's important because when you're driving something like a car, you need to be able to see far away. You need to be able to see the horizon. You need to be able to see an oncoming car. You need to be able to see an upcoming bend in the road uh, so that you can, in the present, do what's necessary so that you can apply the brakes or you can turn the wheel or whatever. As James prepares to close his letter here, he is really stirring our imaginations for this coming day stirring our imaginations for it. He's working to sharpen our vision, to bring this horizon he's talking about into focus. But, you know, we say, well, that's in the distance. You know, that's then. What about now? James is, James is really just an echo of the teaching of the whole Bible on this, which is it's a vision of the horizon which really has the power to shape your life in the present, to live in view of this horizon that we're going to talk about. It shapes the way you respond and the way you deal with the hardness of life and suffering and temptation and disappointment and pain and hurt and on and on we could go. This horizon, James is telling us, doesn't just shape how we respond to our suffering, but it also shapes all of our relationships, right? It shapes the way we relate to our spouses, the way we relate to our children, to our friends, to one another in the church, to God Himself. And so, listen, James tells us three things in these verses that I, I want us to spend a little bit of time talking through, and, and it's this. First, he tells us, how this horizon shapes our experience of suffering. And then second, I want us to talk about how the horizon shapes our relationships. And then finally, I want us to talk about how this horizon shapes our faithfulness. So first, how this horizon shapes our experience of suffering. You know, if you haven't been with us for, you know, during the fall, you will realize that, or if you've read James's letter before, you realize that suffering is a major theme for James' letter. Um, it, it's how he really begins his letter, right? He tells us that we're to count it joy when we face, when we meet trials of various kinds. And it's really in the context of suffering that James talked about in uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, that James wrote in verse 7, "'Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord.'" He's saying the Lord is coming. And in view of that horizon, be patient in your suffering. 
Endure in your suffering in light of that horizon. See, if you lose sight of that horizon, and many of us have, and many of us do, you can't be patient in the present in your suffering. You won't be able to count your suffering or your trials in life as joy if you lose that vision of that horizon. If you lose sight of that horizon, your heart and mind, they're going to begin to freeze over with hardness and bitterness and anger and cynicism and jealousy and self-absorption. Why is the farmer that James mentioned in verse 7, why is he patient? Right? It's because he can see the horizon. He understands the seasons. We're not going to get into Palestinian uh, uh, agriculture this morning, but he can see He can see the fruit even before he sees the fruit. Author Eugene Peterson, he described faith once in terms of imagination and seeing. And this is what he wrote. He wrote, when I look at a tree, most of what I see, I do not see at all. I see a root system beneath the surface, sending tendrils through the soil, sucking up nutrients out of the loom. Out of the loam. I see the light pouring energy into the leaves. I see the fruit that will appear in a few months. I stare and stare and see the bare branches austere in the next winter snow and wind. I see all that I really do. I'm not making it up. And he says this, but I could not photograph it. I see it by means of imagination. If my imagination is stunted or inactive, I will only see what I can use or something that is in my way. So listen, If you're unable to see the horizon, your heart is going to freeze over with jealousy and self-absorption as you only see what you can use in this life for yourself. If you are unable to see the horizon, your heart will freeze over with cynicism and bitterness and anger as you see only what gets in your way. Right, Reaching all the way back to where James began his letter, this has been his point, suffering and trials, and the hardness of life is necessary. It's required, is what James has been saying, because that's what God uses to make us ready for Jesus, right? It's what he uses to knock the self-centeredness from our hearts. It's what he uses to forge and mature and shape and mold us to be more like Jesus. Are you nearsighted? Or can you see this horizon? Because this horizon shapes the way you experience your suffering. We have four kids in elementary school, um, and without fail, every year, one of my kids' classes has a caterpillar in a jar or in a container, right? Um, And the class watches that caterpillar in the container or the jar, and it eventually makes its cocoon in, in, in its captive environment, you know, and, and the kids watch and they wait with bated breath so that they can see that caterpillar that has been transformed in its cocoon into a butterfly. And so they'll watch this, this, um, this transformed caterpillar into a butterfly. They'll watch it struggle and fight its way out of the cocoon so that it can soar and fly and be what it was made to be, right? But here's the thing. I don't know if you know this about butterflies, but um, if you intervene 
and you rescue the butterfly from the struggle and the fight to liberate itself from that cocoon, you ruin the butterfly. It will never soar. It will never fly. Because the way the butterfly strengthens its wings to be able to fly is through the struggle and through the fight. It's necessary and it's required. The suffering of our lives, it's multicolored. It's many-faceted. It's complex and intricate. That's actually what the Greek word for various means. When James wrote in chapter 1 about various trials of many kinds, financial struggles, relational struggles, a child caught in the web of addiction, an unfaithful spouse, death and loss, difficulty and frustrated happiness and joy in your vocation, soul-shaking disappointments and pain, chronic illness… I mean, we could go on and on for days, right? And being a Christian, James is saying, doesn't exempt you from any of life's struggles. But if you can see the horizon, he's saying, it can transform and shape your experience of suffering in this life. The king who stands ready to come again, he will not waste one bit, one ounce of your suffering in this life. You need to use your imagination to see this. He's forging, maturing, and shaping you to soar and to fly and to become what He made you to be. This suffering in this life, it's necessary. It's required. And so James says, be patient in view of the horizon. Okay, second, let's talk about how this horizon can shape our relationships. In verse 9, James wrote, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. James was writing to believers. He was writing to brothers, as he says in that verse. And as one author reminds us, James isn't saying here that Christians will face wrath on God's judgment day, but James is using this language. He's using this language of judgment to remind us that Jesus will indeed come, and it's sure and it's fixed. And when he does, he will assess every word, every thought, every attitude of our hearts. And so James is saying, let the view of that horizon shape your relationships. And in particular, James mentions here for us grumbling against one another. You know, grumbling is complaining. Um, It's griping against one another. It's being quick to find faults in one another. It's being petty with one another. Um, But isn't it interesting that this is what James thinks about when he thinks about Jesus coming as a judge, right? I mean, I I could think of a lot of other sins that he might have put there uh, in in light of that day, right? Maybe you think of some of the seven deadly sins, you know, as they've come to be known, something like lust or greed or murder or something like that. Um, But grumbling? It seems so small, uh, right? Is it really that big of a deal? And James certainly thinks so. He thinks it's a huge deal. Right, listen, we all have complainers in your lives. You have them just as well as I have them. And I see that email in my inbox or that missed call from that person, or I can read it in somebody's eyes approaching me in the hallway and embracing myself, right, 
for the latest uh, tale of, of their um, de- detailed description of their most recent martyrdom in life, you know, and it, it just sucks the life out of us. And that's just to listen to grumbling, right? It, it's toxic and it's poisonous, whether it's in your home or in the church or in your marriage or wherever, right? And if it's toxic and poisonous for us to listen to, and the question is this, why wouldn't it be toxic and poisonous to your heart when you grumble and complain? You know, it's very easy for us to be blind to this in ourselves because, of course, we've rationalized it and we've justified our complaining, right? And, and we're the victims here, of course. And James is saying, you had better take this seriously because grumbling is a poison that will rot your soul from the inside out. Now, why is that? You know, complaining and grumbling, being petty and quick to find faults in others, do you know what that really reveals about your heart? Ask, you could ask the people you complain to and against what they think. And if they're honest with you, um, they might say, you know what it does? Is it reveals your chronic and obsessive fascination with yourself and self-absorption. Always concerned that life isn't fair for you, right? Always asking what's in it for me. So concerned about how you're going to be affected, what your needs and your wants are in this life, right? Listen to me. There is nothing more enslaving, more exhausting, more miserable than being consumed with yourself, right? Nothing puts you farther from the life of flourishing that God made you to enjoy than the life-sucking consumption with yourself, right? You are made for freedom, and you are made to live for something bigger, something more grand, something more glorious than just your small world, and your personal comforts or discomforts. You can only flourish in this life when you get out of yourself and live according to your design. So here's the question. How do we get free from self-absorbed grumbling in this life? How do you find a cure? How do you find an antidote for the toxic, poisonous self-consumption, right, that drives your complaining? James says you get a clear view of this horizon that we're talking about, a bigger, grander, more glorious vision than your small world. You cure your nearsighted with this vision of a judge who is coming, who, who, a judge who is coming to put everything wrong in this world right again, a judge who is coming to assess every word, every thought, every deed, every attitude of our hearts. You know, C.S. Lewis, he famously wrote, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely, to see, largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this world. You know, I'm getting to an age where... Um, I'm in my 40s now, and it does feel like I'm, I'm starting to become the grumpy old man that, uh, that I, I used to always be annoyed with, you know, kids these days, um, all that stuff. Um, 
And so I know that what I'm about to say might sound a little bit like that, but more and more research is coming out about this. You, you can read it on your own. But the screens of our lives, the TVs, the iPhones, right, um, the iPads, the tablets, and all that kind of stuff, they are killing our imaginations, killing them, killing our ability as we talked about in the first point, to see without seeing, right? And, and we have to cultivate our imaginations to live in view of this horizon that James is putting before us. We have to cultivate our imaginations for this horizon to shape our relationships. Can you imagine this other world that Lewis was talking about? Right? This day when Jesus, the judge, appears. Dostoevsky wrote, to love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. It's to see another, to see someone else with your imagination. To see what he or she will be like one day when Jesus comes again. To see right now what God is making that woman or that man into right now. Because if you can see that, it will shape your present. It will make you effective in the present in your relationships. Those of you who are married, let me ask you this. How would it change your marriage if instead of looking for your spouse's faults, instead of grumbling about their deficiencies, instead of nagging them about their disappointments, What would it change in your marriage if you spent all of that time instead seeing the person whom God is making your spouse into? What would it change if you spent your energy imagining and encouraging the beauty and character in your spouse that will one day last forever? Right? Lewis said somewhere, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. What if you saw those things in your spouse and encouraged those things? What if you learned to see your spouse with your imagination and saw what God was making him or her into? My guess is that it might change your marriage, and it might make your marriage happier. I I know it would in mine, and I'm surprised my wife is not saying amen to that right now. Um, I mean, instead of sucking the life out of one another— with toxic, poisonous grumbling, our marriages would become places where life flourished in light of Jesus coming again, where we were engaged in something more grand and more glorious and more captivating than our own small worlds of discomfort. I've got to move on, but you need to take this and apply this to the way you see your friends to the way you see your coworkers, to the way you see your children, to the way you see those you think you don't have anything in common with, to the way you see the stranger on the street. You need to apply it to the environments that are typically hotbeds for grumbling and complaining. You know where those are? I, I think they are the church, the workplace, and your home. You need to take this and apply that. Can you use your imagination? Can you see with your imagination to see and live in view of this horizon? It has the power to shape 
and transform your relationships. Okay, finally, let's talk together about how the horizon shapes your faithfulness. And the faithfulness that is in view, if you look at verses 10 through 12 of our passage, is your faithfulness to God, right? Keeping your commitment to Him, your oaths even, remaining obedient to God, living with integrity no matter the circumstances that come into your life. And the example that James keyed in on here in this passage was that of the prophets and of Job, right? God told Isaiah, let's use a couple examples here. God told Isaiah to go and preach to a people who would hear him but never understand, a people who would see but never perceive. Go preach, and you will never have a convert, and no one will ever believe you, God told Isaiah. I mean, his ministry was fruitless in his lifetime. His ministry, most would say today, was a total and complete failure. Jeremiah was told to preach God's judgment upon his people. So you know what happened? All his friends got together and said, we really should kill this guy. What a fun, (laughs) joyful ministry. Um, Elijah, Elisha, Ezekiel, Amos, their prophecies were ignored at best, and they were treated as hated at worst. Right, the author of Hebrews, uh, he offers a nice summary of many of their ministries in chapter 11. I'll just mention a few of the things. He says, they were tortured, they suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment, they were stoned, they were sawn in, sawn in two and killed with the sword. They were destitute, living in caves and holes of the earth. God went to Hosea and he said, I really want you to go marry this unfaithful woman who will content, continually betray your trust and sleep with other lovers. And God said, keep on going to get her and forgive her because this is how you're going to understand my love for my people. The prophets' lives and their ministries, they were a broken, tattered mess. Everything, the suffering they faced, the persecution they persevered through, the personal discomfort they experienced, and you would not have heard of a one of them if they had been unfaithful to God's call on their lives. You would never have heard of one of them had they said, I think I'll do what's practical rather than obey. And Job, right, the suffering he experienced when God withdrew his protecting presence and his hand for a moment in his life. He lost all his wealth, his children perished, his wife vilified him, his body was covered with sores, and yet he remained steadfast. And he's the one who said, shall we receive good from the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? He was the one who said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in the end, God restored Job and displayed his compassion and his mercy in his life. If you're like me, you felt this temptation looming in your life in the midst of suffering, 
when you're facing the complex and hard realities of trials in this life, whether that's financial or relational or a child caught in addiction or just one of many of life's soul-shaking disappointments, it looks so senseless to go on obeying God. It doesn't look practical at all. And so what James does is he like grabs us by the chin and he forces our head to look up, to see the horizon. He asks, verse 11, and have you seen the, prom- the purpose of the Lord? He asks, have you seen the, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful no matter what the circumstances of your life at the moment may seem? When it feels impractical to obey God in the midst of a marriage that is very, very hard. When it feels impractical to obey God when money is so, so very tight. When it feels impractical to obey God in a career when you know that integrity is going to cost you, cost you your job. When it feels impractical to obey God with your sexuality when that certainly means a death of your desires. The way to be patient and the way to endure and to remain steadfast, James is saying, is to see the horizon, to with your imagination see what can't be seen. It is very true that I quote C.S. Lewis far too often. I know that. I'm guilty of it. But I think I read Lewis a lot because Lewis has this ability, at least for me, to capture my imagination and to kindle my imagination. And one of the best places he does this is in the final pages of his series of books, The Chronicles of Narnia. This point in his story when the king, Aslan, when he is bringing his creation into a broken world that is being put right and all brokenness mended and healed. A Narnia like the old Narnia, he writes, but so much deeper, where every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. A new Narnia where the characters, they finally realize that all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had just been the cover and the title page. Now at last they were beginning chapter 1 of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. A world in which his characters, when they suddenly realize all of this, they say, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life though I never knew it till now. Listen, we have to cultivate a view of that horizon to imagine it and see it even though we can't see it. A day when all the sadness of your life in this world will one day come untrue. The sadness and suffering of this life, if you can see that it's really all just the cover and title page to a great story, which, is, which will go on forever and ever, in which every chapter is better than the one that came before it, if you can see that, then that view will shape your faithfulness in the present and your obedience. Can you see that? That's the question today. Here's the truth. I woke up this morning 
And I just had a sinking feeling about this passage. Um, There are hard things to say in this passage. I guess that's part of it. But more personally, because honestly, it just feels so unrealistic to me. Right? To be patient in suffering. Right? When life is really, really hurting. To endure it with joy because you know that God is using it to make you into what he intends you to be? I mean, can, can I really be <laughs> that patient when I'm really being hurt in life? Don't grumble, don't complain. I mean, everybody seems to be doing that. Don't get lost in your own self-absorption. Is it really realistic that I would live so consistently with this horizon in my view that I would not complain and not grumble and it would free me from my constant navel-gazing, right? Is, is it realistic that, that I can live and obey and be faithful to God no matter what comes into my life, no matter the hardship, the persecution, the suffering? It just seems very unrealistic. Um, it seems out of reach. Uh, and if you're tracking with all of this, it probably feels that way to you too. Um, verse 8, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. That sounds really good. You know, you cross-stitch that and you put it up on your wall in your house, and, but just don't think about it too much, right? Um, because who could possibly do that in light of life's hardness? Not me, and not you. But there was one man. You know, that word James used for establish in that verse, the Greek word there, it's a word that Luke used in his gospel in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when he wrote this, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem the suffering he endured in this life, the immeasurable suffering, and with what patience he endured it. I mean, he knew what awaited him in Jerusalem, and he firmly chose to go there undeterred. The life that was laid out before him by his Father, obey me perfectly in every way, and in the end, I will crush you upon a cross for the sins of others. The rejection, the disappointment, the betrayal he experienced, and never once did he grumble or complain. How did he do it? And why did he do it? He saw the horizon. And what he saw on the horizon was you. Right For the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12, 2. He endured the cross, scorning its shame. You were the joy set before him. You were the joy on his horizon. He came and he never grumbled. And he never complained. He was always patient. And he endured and he remained steadfast to the very end for you. So how do we establish our hearts? We look at him. 
Hebrews chapter 12, we fix our eyes on him. We see what he did for us and we cultivate our imaginations and we long with anticipation for when the great lover of our souls will come again for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, it is right after reading these words, your word, that we would come before you and we would beg for your help. Because we are often so, so very nearsighted, so, so very myopic. We see only our small little worlds and are consumed with ourselves. Father, we see our suffering, but we don't see the end of our suffering and what you are doing. And we need your help. We need your help that you would lift our eyes to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at your right hand. Father, we need to see that horizon if we are to have hope, if we are to be patient, if we are to endure, if we are to encourage one another. Father, fill our hearts and our minds with an imagination to be able to see what we cannot see. And we pray that you would transform our very present with that future. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.